our scripture reading today uh, is quite long, so rather than standing like we usually do, I think I'm going to encourage everyone to stay seated for this one. The scripture reading comes from 1 Kings 19, 1 through 18. Ahab told Jezebel that Elijah had done, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. The word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? 
Father, we have just said, as we have heard your word, thanks be to you, because we know that your word is a treasure to us. It is precious. Um, in many ways, it is our spiritual lifeblood. And so uh, our desire is to savor, even right now, to, to pay close attention that we might hear you speak to us, that we might be spiritually revived, that we might be drawn nearer to you. And so we pray for that. We pray that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly and that you would strengthen our faith in him through this time and that you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about a half dozen years ago, a man by the name of Michael Burry wrote a rather extraordinary column in the New York Times entitled, I Saw the Crisis Coming, Why Didn't the Fed? And if uh, you are not familiar with the name Michael Burry, or if you are, sorry, if you are familiar with it, it's probably because you've either seen the movie or read the book entitled The Big Short. Because Michael Burry was one of the few people who, way before things hit, saw where things were going and predicted that there was going to be a major collapse in the financial market. And of course, he was absolutely right. And in this column, he writes with deep frustration, saying, people should have seen it. He writes of how people were paying attention to the wrong details. All they saw was that the houses are seeming to get always more valuable, that the stock market is going up, but there was a real story that people weren't paying attention to. They didn't see the real story, and the real story is that lots of people were borrowing way beyond what they could repay to get these houses. See, it's really important to see the real story that is going on and not be distracted by some of the window dressing. This past week, I was reading um, a column written uh, by a guy by the name of Cornell West, who's this American intellectual in the Boston Globe. And uh, he said, as we are following the election cycle, we are missing the main thing that's going on. We're missing the story. That, that what we're seeing here in our country is not something between conservatism and liberalism. It's not about populism. It's not about scandal. What we see here is a story of spiritual blackout. Those were his words. He argues that democracy always has, has dangers, the dangers of ignorance and the dangers of greed. And over the last century, what we've sought to use to kind of stop those dangers is our education system. The goal is that with education, we could keep people from some of those problems. And what we see this year is that has absolutely failed. That the real story is how what he calls the, the soul craft that is what we have lost, the soul craft of developing wisdom and justice and peace. And so what is going on right now is a spiritual blackout where we have lost some treasures. That, he says, is the real story we should be paying attention to this year. Again, it's important for us to, to look beyond a lot of the noise and understand the heart of what's going on because only then can we make decisions rightly. Only then can we live rightly. Well, our passage this morning drills down and says, here is the real story of what was going on. You might remember last week, we finished with, with God telling Solomon, because of your idolatry, things are going to go badly. Not for you, but for your descendants. This kingdom is going to take a turn for the worse. And it's exactly what happens. Solomon's son manages things poorly. And as a result, the kingdom is splintered. 
There is the large part of the kingdom, the, the northern ten tribes that retain the name Israel, and then there's just the two other tribes, Judah and the south, that hold the capital, that is Jerusalem. And Israel experiences all sorts of chaos. It seems every few years there's another coup. There's another king that takes the throne. But eventually, about 60 years after Solomon's death, finally things start beginning to stabilize. This man, Omri, takes the throne. And he begins what's known as the Omride dynasty. He makes some good decisions in terms of alliances with other nations. He builds a capital. He strengthens the military. And he becomes, and, and the nation of Israel becomes kind of a superpower in the area. Not just him, but his son Ahab and Ahab's son. They suddenly or finally kind of bring about this time of military might and prosperity for Israel. But the interesting thing is, when you get to 1 Kings you would almost not even realize that that's going on. Because the chapters that we're looking at say that's not the real story. That's just a bubble. That's just window dressing. That's not the thing that's important that's going on in the life of Israel. The thing that is important that you need to pay attention to, the real story, is the story of the relationship between Israel and God. See, for Omri to make some of these alliances he had to make some compromises. His son, Ahab, marries Jezebel, who was a die-hard Baal worshiper from another nation. And when Ahab comes into power, he makes a temple for Baal, a false god, in their capital, doing the very core thing that he's not supposed to do as a leader of Israel. And so there's a real big danger for the relationship between Israel and God. And that, says Kings, is really where the story is. That's the important plot line for us to pay attention to. And so what Kings does is it draws our attention to a specific figure. The mediator that God brings between him and his people. The mediator whose name is Elijah. Now, I realize when we hear mediator, we probably think primarily of conflict, right? Because a mediator oftentimes steps in when two sides are conflicted. But, but the idea of mediation or, or a mediator is a little simpler than that. A mediator is just simply a go-between, one who kind of stands with one foot in one camp and one foot in the other seeking to bridge the gap. Usually it means a mediator has sympathies with both sides. He knows both sides. He cares about both sides, and he's trying to facilitate their relationship. And at certain points in history, God gives Israel a mediator for that very purpose. The first of these is Moses. And you remember Moses' story, right? When, when Moses is in the wilderness, God appears to him in this burning bush and begins a relationship with Moses that is unlike anyone else's relationship with God. He speaks directly to Moses. Moses can speak directly to him. And Moses comes to know God intimately. And so because of that, he has his foot in both camps. On one hand, he is an Israelite. He is a human being. He cares for his people. Yet on the other hand, he knows God. And because of God's word, he's able to see things from God's perspective. He's able to recognize the weightiness of sin. And so he's a go-between. On one hand, he can speak for God. Thus says the Lord. This is what God says to the people. And yet at the same time, he can speak for the people and pray for them before God. He, he is a mediator who stands between these two sides. 
Now, at one point, shortly before Moses dies, he says, I'm not going to be the only mediator like that. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, there is going to be another who is like me, another prophet. You could say he's a Moses 2.0, who will come centuries later to also mediate like I did. And this Moses 2.0 is Elijah. Elijah is the one that that God spoke of, that Moses spoke of way back in Deuteronomy, someone who would mediate in the same way that Moses did, a prophet who would both hear God's word and speak for God, and yet be one of the people and speak for the people. And his job, like any mediator's job, is, is to fight for this relationship, to fight for the relationship between God and his people. And fight he did. Right when he jumps into the scene, just a couple chapters before we get to the passage that we're looking at this morning, you see he is a fighter. And what he's fighting for is to free God's people from this false idol worship, this worship of Baal. So he confronts Ahab. He has chutzpah. I mean, there's boldness in Elijah. And, and Baal, you should know, was, was known as the god of storms, the god of rain and thunder. And so to show just how weak Baal is, Elijah says it's going to stop raining for a while. And it does. There is this drought for months upon months upon months, and no amount of prayer to Baal is able to change this. And then he challenges Ahab to what I I guess should just be called a worship duel. Because he says there's going to be two altars. One can be for Baal, one can be for God, and the only rule is neither of us get to set it alight. We're going to let God or Baal do it. And so first, it's the Baal altar and the Baal prophets. There's a few hundred Baal prophets, and they are singing, they are chanting, they're praying, they're even cutting themselves, trying to get God's attention. Meanwhile, Elijah, and this is, this is straight from the passage, is taunting them, saying, maybe, maybe Baal is in the bathroom, or maybe he's sleeping, maybe you should call louder, and, and nothing, of course, happens. And eventually, they just kind of collapse in exhaustion. And so then Elijah... I told you he has chutzpah. He, he gets these buckets of water and just drenches the altar. It could not be less flammable. And then he prays the simple prayer and whoosh, like this huge flame just consumes the altar in a moment. And then Elijah says, now we've seen who is truly God. Now that you know, now it's going to rain. And just downpour comes and it's like Elijah drops the mic, walks off. I mean, this is like a Hollywood scene of absolute entire victory. Baal is completely trounced beyond the shadow of a doubt. Except there's a twist. Because in the next moment, this is where really we started with our passage this morning, we find that his goal, his goal of freeing Israel, freeing the leadership from Baal worship has not succeeded. Jezebel, who frankly really is the one in charge of Israel, is not moved at all. She still is devoted to Baal, and her commitment is to kill Elijah, the last main prophet, the mediator. She is trying to stamp out the relationship between the true God and Israel. Now, this is an important moment. This is is bigger than any military battle or political alliance. This is a question that's raised. What happens when God's people utterly fail in their relationship? What happens when God's mediator fails? What is going to happen? 
Well, we see what Elijah does. Our translation says that Elijah was afraid. Probably a better one is when Elijah saw. That is, when he saw what was going on, when he saw that he had failed, he leaves. He, He goes completely out of the nation of Israel. He goes into the wilderness. He finds a shady tree. And he says, it's enough. I'm done. And he lays down to die. It's important for us to understand just how difficult it was, it is, to be God's mediator. This is not the first time we see this. This is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. In fact, Moses, you know, the great first mediator, there's this one point in the book of Numbers where he tells God, I am not able to carry the people alone. This burden is too heavy for me. And he asks God to take his life. Later on, we have Jeremiah, who also is a prophet, also a mediator. And, and Jeremiah is so overwhelmed by trying to both speak for God and for people that at a certain point he says, Cursed be the day on which I was born. Oh, that I had been killed in the womb. And what we see is it's an enormously difficult thing to be God's mediator. And if we pause for a moment, I think we can probably understand why. Have you ever been in a situation where you are kind of a go-between between two people that you care about? Maybe it's a married couple, or maybe it's two close friends. And perhaps one side is essentially in the right, and they're generous, and they want to be reconciled, but one side is just not going to have anything of it. They are just not wanting to change, and there you are, and you love both of them, and you long for both of them to come back together but they will not. It can be excruciating. And that's the way it is for for God's mediator. He cares about his people. He cares about his God. It's like he's holding on to both sides and it is pulling him apart. It reminds me, and don't laugh, it reminds me of this scene in Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2, the Tobey Maguire one, which is the good one, of course. And And there's this moment where there's this train hurtling to its destruction. You have Spider-Man in the front of the train, and he's trying to figure out a way to stop it. And it's just got so much momentum. And at a certain point, he shoots out webs on both sides to grab like seven buildings on both sides. And he's just holding on while the train keeps pushing itself. And it's like he's getting pulled so far apart that he's about to break. And that's essentially what God's mediator finds himself in. He's holding on to God. He's holding on to the people. And this force of sin is pushing and pushing. And it's not clear what the outcome is going to be. And it raises a question. Is this relationship between God and his people even able to work? Or is the tension so great? Is the power of sin so great that the mediator is going to fail because this relationship is impossible? That's really the question that Elijah is wrestling with, and he has come to a conclusion. It's enough. I can't do it any more than people before me can. He has decided that as his his job as a mediator, he has failed. And so all that's left is for him to die. And so he lies down to die. But we see God's response. God himself is still going to fight for this relationship. He is not going to let this relationship or its mediator die. And so there's this moment in the passage, behold, you know, an angel brings food and water to bring Elijah from death kind of back to living. So Elijah eats and drinks, and then he goes back. And then a second time, this angel comes. And what we see 
is that God is love. He, he doesn't just love Elijah, although he does. God so loves this relationship with his people that he is going to fight for it. And so he says to Elijah, it's time, you know, like you need to eat for this journey. Which is a strange detail because Elijah certainly doesn't look like he has his walking shoes on. I mean, he is, he is not mobile. Yet, yet Elijah seems to understand what he's talking about. They both understand that Elijah needs to make this journey. And the, the journey we find is to a very significant place, to Mount Horeb, which is just another name for Mount Sinai. And here's where the Moses 2.0 themes really come through. Because you might remember the last person who ever went to the top of Mount Sinai himself was Moses. And if you remember some of the details, it speaks of how for 40 days and nights Moses goes without food. And then finally he appears before God and God passes by in front of him. And what they do is they forge the covenant between God and his people. This, this agreement, this set of relational promises of how God says, I am going to do these things for you. I am going to bring salvation to you and through you to the world. This covenant is formed right in that moment with Moses. And now what do we see with Elijah? Elijah tells us for 40 days and 40 nights he goes without food. We, we see in this passage about how God passes by him as he also is in Mount Sinai. This is a Moses moment, but the question that we should be asking is, what is going on? So if he is trying to do Moses 2.0, why? I mean, the covenant has already been formed. What is he here for? And of course, that's exactly the question that God asks. What are you doing? Now, those words, what are you doing to us, sound critical. Like, what are you doing here? But, but you remember, Elijah wasn't even necessarily interested in going here. God was the one who empowered him to come. This is not a criticism. Really, we should see this more like the beginning of a formal ceremony. O mediator of Israel, what business do you have here at my mountain? That's, that's, the, that's the implied idea here. And so we see Elijah's response. What brings me here is jealousy for you. Now, the idea of jealousy for you is saying, I long to see you worshipped. You deserve to be worshipped. You deserve to be loved. And Israel is not loving you as you deserve. And we see where this jealousy flows from. We see three charges that Elijah makes, and all of them are true. Israel has turned away from this covenant, the covenant that was made with Moses. They've broken it. Israel has rejected altars towards you. In other words, they're no longer interested in worshiping you. And they have eliminated all prophets. I'm the last one. They are trying to stamp out your word. What's going on here? The mediator now is coming back to Mount Sinai, and it's not to forge a covenant. It's to dissolve it. He is bringing charges against his people, saying they have utterly broken their end of the agreement. They have failed. Now, in case you don't see this, let me just pause to say this moment where only one person knows what's going on is the single most important moment in the world right then. Nothing else compares. No fighting, no inventions, no rulers. Right here is where the entire fate of the universe hangs on a balance. Because if the covenant has failed, humanity 
has failed. There is no more hope. Because remember, it is going to be through this people that God has promised that he is going to bring salvation to the world. He's going to bring about his people in his place under his rule. And if it's over, then it's over for everyone. And Elijah knows that. This is why he didn't want to go here. Now, the, covenant, the consequences for covenant breaking are clear. Back when the covenant was formed, a series of curses were named as this is what's going to happen if you break it. And God says at the end of these curses, all of these curses shall come upon you until you are destroyed. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments. And they have not obeyed the Lord, voice of the Lord their God. They have stamped it out. They have not kept his commandments. The consequences are absolutely clear. And so this is where we have ourselves in this moment of wondering, what is God going to do? And at first it seems like judgment is exactly what we're going to see. Because as, as the Lord passes in front of, of Elijah, what do we hear? We hear that there is this windstorm tearing apart the mountain. There is fire. There is an earthquake. These are images of judgment and of destruction. It is a sign that, yes, Israel deserves destruction and they will be judged. But there's something else going on that, that kind of provides almost this, this other, uh, other theme, a counterpoint. It says that even as these things happen and they go before God, God is not in the earthquake, the storm, the fire. In other words, though these things are God's choice, they are not what identify God's final determination. And then when you get to what should be the climax, after these three things prepare and we're expecting for this final declaration, the covenant is over, what do we find? Well, most, many translations have it saying a, a gentle whisper or a still small voice, but if you actually, if you have your ESVs with you, you might notice that there is a footnote that says, or a thin silence. And that actually is the better translation. What does Elijah hear in this moment? Nothing. He's expecting to hear a declaration, and all he hears is the sound of silence. So it happens a second time. A lot of times with formal ceremonies, you'll see something repeated. And this time, the same thing kind of unpacks what happened the first time. What are you doing here, Elijah? I am jealous for you, and here's how God's people have completely wronged you. But this time, rather than in symbolic form, God uses words to explain. And, and to begin with, you see, once again, this theme of judgment. He says, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu and Elisha you shall anoint. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall put Jehu to death. So Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. This is the fire, the wind, and the earthquake. These three people are God's agents of destruction. And here is the judgment. God cannot tolerate idolatry. This world only makes sense, only holds together if he is at the center. And so he must judge and destroy all idolatry for this world to be saved. So there is judgment. But there's something else that God says. Instead of declaring an end, he says, yet, and boy, those, that word is so important, yet, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, 
and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is what the silence meant, and it's really significant. Though they deserve it in every way, God will not reject his people. He is still holding on to a relationship with them. God is saying, I am not done. You might, Elijah, feel like you are done, but I am not. Yes, this feels like a failure, and in many ways it is. And from here on out, we will see that God's purposes are not going to happen through the structures of the political entity of Israel. The kings are just too corrupt. The hope is not going to be found in these kings and these structures. This is an end of an era right here. But it is not the end of a relationship. God is still committed to his covenant. And so there is still a place for God's mediator. Elijah, he says, you're going to be an agent of judgment. You're going to bring destruction, but that's not all you're going to do. You and the prophets after you, you are going to pursue the people who will trust in me. You are going to nurture this remnant, this remnant of faithful people, and through them I will fulfill my promises. There is still hope for the world. So Elijah is not ultimately broken. He is able to continue. He's able to even thrive in his remaining years. Now, centuries later, there is what we might call a Moses 3.0. He also is a mediator. And more than any person before him, he has his feet in both camps. He's fully human. He fully is like us in every way, able to sympathize with us. He is an Israelite. And yet, in a way that no one else was before, he is fully God with the same passions of God, the same vision of God, the same understanding as God. And this holding two sides together is excruciating for Jesus. He weeps over his people. He longs to see them love God as God deserves. And as he seeks to hold both sides together, it truly breaks him apart. He is put to death by us in a way that Jezebel couldn't, even as he carries our sin. But again, God is not going to allow this relationship to die. He is not going to allow his son to stay in death. And so God, raising Jesus from the dead, says, there is a mediator now for you who will never die. There is a relationship now that you will never lose. Whoever places their faith in Jesus has a relationship with me that can never be lost. All of your sins, all of your idolatries will be forgiven. And let me say, this is your story. I mean, it's so easy to get lost in the story of our own personal success, whether it's with work or how we're doing with family, and these things are not unimportant, but the story that drives your life, that is at the heart of who you are, is the story of your relationship with God and how God has not given up on a relationship with you. How Jesus has mediated for you and invites you to trust in him so that you have a relationship with him, so that you are made more and more like Jesus. Do you realize that is the story that defines you? And that's the story that defines this world. This world is not a story of political rising and falling, thank 
God, literally. And it's not a story of battles. It's not a story of technological progress. It's not a story of economic crashing. It is a story of God bringing about people into relationship with him through Jesus. That's the story that if you want to know what's going on, that's the one you need to pay attention to. And here's the thing, the final thing that I want you to realize. He is doing this through his mediator. But you know how Jesus is mediating, how he is bringing together his people and God. We, his church, are his body. If you have placed your faith in Christ, God has given you a mission. In Jesus, you are called to be one who stands in between. You have the role of Elijah. You are called to pray for the people around you, to long to see the redemption, to long to see them come back to God. You're called to speak on God's behalf. You're called in all of your work and all of your things to bring everything you can under God's rule because you are a go-between. And that's both bad news and good news. The bad news is it is an agonizing role. And if you are faithful, you will feel pulled apart at times. But it is a hopeful role. Because Jesus has already won. And through the power that Christ gives you, people are brought back to God. There is hope. Right now we have um, the table before us. And this table is, is God telling us that Jesus truly did die for us. It is reminding us that our mediator is real and true and that we are brought close to God through him. And as this is the central story that drives our attention, then it is right for us regularly to kind of return to it. And one of the ways we do this is through simply confessing our sins, acknowledging to God how we have turned away from him, coming back to him and seeking once again the forgiveness that we have in Christ. So I'd like you um, to take a moment with me to spend some time in quiet confession. And what we're going to be doing is just kind of coming before God, naming our sins before him, not just to kind of dwell in the mud, but because by doing this, we're acknowledging our need for Jesus. We're placing our faith in our mediator. We'll do it silently, and then I will lead us in this confession of sin that I'll ask you to join in at the end. So would you please join with me in a time of community confession? Let's pray silently. Please join with me where the print is bold. Gracious God, we have come to see that our lives fall far short of your glory. Have mercy and forgive us. You have given your son for us and poured out your spirit, yet we fail to return your love with all our heart. Have mercy and change us. Too often we are selfish and proud, ignoring you, and neglecting others. Have mercy and cleanse us. When we do not truly trust and obey you, we are overwhelmed by self-pity, fear, and worry. Have mercy and deliver us. In Christ, we are given a sure hope and secure love 
yet we follow the false hopes and desires of this world. Have mercy and renew us. Father, through the redeeming death of your Son, by your Spirit, and through your word, enable us to follow you with joy. All this we ask, confident of your faithfulness and love. Amen. Friend, hear the good news of the gospel, that God is slow to anger, and he is full of compassion. He forgives all who humbly repent and trust in his Son as Savior and Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God.